discussion and often a controversial discussion, but as I mentioned last week, it's so important that we not miss the point of it. We can sit there and wrangle over all these specifics, but always when the scriptures talk about end times, it's with an idea toward inspiring how we are to live right now. And it's not just the idea, although it's a part of it, of knowing Jesus could come back at any time, but it's looking at the big picture and realizing how all this winds up. And that's one thing that all Christians agree on. However they think that we're going to get there, we all come to the understanding that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to reign forever. And he'll destroy everything that's evil and put them away and and everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be together forever with him. And so what does that have to do with how we live today is a question that we always have to ask. And last Sunday, as we were in chapter 5 talking about the day of the Lord, we saw Paul's exhortation to faith and love and, and the hope of salvation and how that should be the result of our eschatology. But now beginning with verse 12, as he's closing the book up, he calls them to some very practical and very important reminders about how we ought to live in light of end times, in light of how things wrap up, in light of the fact that we are children of light, not children of darkness. What's life supposed to look like for us? And as he goes through these verses, what seems like almost random little shots, that it's really, he's drawing a picture of how we ought to relate to each other, what the church ought to look like, and how ultimately we are to practice that which we profess to believe. And so he begins, his early comments have to do with how we get along with each other, and specifically he addresses how you ought to look toward people who are in positions of ministry and leadership in the church. And then he shifts gears a bit and kind of shares a bit more of how people who are ministering in the church ought to treat everyone and how all of us should treat each other. Then he zooms in on our own personal, individual lives and finally opens it up by letting us know what we're going to look like when we grow up. And so let's begin with verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, And we urge you, brothers, not commanding you as an apostle, but saying, Hey, I'm your brother, and I'm really strongly encouraging you to do this. And he says, Recognize or respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. First of all, those who labor among you. He's referring to people who are involved in various activities of service within the church, within the body of Christ. Everyone is called to a certain level of involvement and certain gifts that were given in order to function within the body of Christ. And what he's saying is don't, don't take that for granted. Show appreciation for, um, have respect for people based on what they are called to do as they are working for the Lord 
and among the Lord's people. Now, this would include anyone who's involved in any aspect of ministry. Anytime for a church to happen, there's a whole lot of labor behind the scenes that needs to happen in order for us to be able to do church and, and to be a church. And so this would include people who are manning the phones during the week to talk to people, those who get the messages sent off to the radio, those who are you know, ushering, those who are helping you find a place to park in the parking lot, those who prepare the donuts and coffee for fellowship after the service, the greeters, the ushers, the people who are teaching right now your children and children's ministry, those who plan and coordinate things like a motorcycle ride or you know, other ministries that we offer, those who are going to be leading home fellowships and, and hosting those. What he's saying is, be looking for and be expressing appreciation for people who are involved serving God among you. People who are, you see them working, take notice. Now, anyone who labors in the church and expects to receive the, the respect and recognition that you deserve, you're always going to be disappointed. And that's probably a good thing because you should never serve God in order to get recognition. But we understand that, and at the same time, it's important for us to show recognition and express appreciation to those who are laboring among us. Because, you know, it, it's not easy doing what you are called to do because you care about that more than other people do. It's easy for people to walk right past you and not notice or appreciate or even understand the work that you're putting in so that they can receive the ministry that they are receiving. But he's just saying, recognize those. But then he also says, not only those who labor among you, but also those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. That word for admonish is the word to put something alongside the word for mind. And so those who put things in your mind or put you to mind or remind you or, as the English translation here says, admonish you. So he's talking about those who are in positions of, of leadership to teach. And they are reminding you of what God says and of what his word is. And he describes them as being in a position over you. And then he goes on to say, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So he says there are those who are called to certain positions within the church, and those positions may be positions of leadership. And specifically, the leader of the church is to be the one who chiefly admonishes, the one who chiefly does the teaching, who is trying to put within your mind those things that God wants you to hear. And the reason it's over you is because God does hold the pastor accountable for people who listen and, and receive from his ministry. And, and so, and he doesn't say, do this because the guy deserves it. Maybe nobody ever deserves high regard. But the point is, there is a chain of command within the church that God has set up, and that position of leader 
needs to be acknowledged and respected in love for the sake of the position, for the sake of the calling that God has placed on that person's life. Now, this isn't teaching a strong cult-like shepherding thing. You have to do whatever the pastor says, and you can't leave, and all that kind of stuff. That's it's not the idea. It's You're free always to decide where you are going to hang your hat for fellowship and the pastor that you are going to put yourself into submission under, whether you like that concept or not. Um, and you should certainly, and I say this often, when you decide where to go to church, there are plenty of choices. There are plenty of opportunities. And whenever I talk about this, I, I get admonished from uh, people via emails because they say, you know, you make it sound like you don't want us to come to church here. Because you're always saying, well, you know, if you don't like it here, you know, there are other good churches and you can go. And, and somebody recently, when I said something like this, said, are you using reverse psychology to control? I'm like, no, no, really. Seriously, I, I, I'm just saying, I don't own anyone and I don't want anybody to feel like, okay, you're stuck here. You have choices. And the fact is, you're never going to find a pastor that is in and of himself really worthy of this kind of very high loving esteem. But you choose where you feel like God is leading you, and as he says, for the work's sake, you better find somebody that you can trust enough to plug in and say, you know what, I hold you on a certain level. Now, I really, just by my nature, I kind of resist people who are trying to build me up or put me on a pedestal. I don't, you know, I try not to promote myself. You don't see flashy videos of me on the website showing me in different, you know, poses and (laughs) things like that. And, you know, when I go to speak somewhere, often they'll ask for a picture of me to put on their flyer. And often it's a picture from my iPhone, just I hold it out here and just snap it and send it to them. So not big on headshots. And and honestly, I suppose a part of that is I'm afraid of people looking up to me too much because I am what I am, and you're going to be disappointed at some point. But regardless of who the person is, it's really important to understand that God has set the church up with a pastor, an elder, to be in a position of leadership. And if other people don't line themselves up in that chain of command that he has set up, it will be completely disruptive to the church. Now, it's funny because I personally enjoy having some crackpots in the church. I mean, really and affectionately, I say, you know, there's some people who are constantly, you know, wanting to disagree and everything. And it's, to me, that's a little more interesting than having a church that acts like Hitler's youth and they just do whatever I say. But, but at the same time, there is, it is important for people to take seriously where they decide to fellowship and to look as much as possible for someone who seems to be doing it the way they're doing it and then let the pastor lead and fit your ministry in line with that pastor's. I've had times in the past where because I am so um, 
more or less easygoing, laissez-faire. Some would say, I just let people have too much freedom or whatever. But there are times when somebody's own vision starts to explode and, and they begin to take over that which is that I'm supposed to do. And as a pastor, sometimes I have to be involved in making some changes in ministries and things like that. And when I do, sometimes I feel the wrath of people who feel like, you know, I'm threatening their kingdom. I, you know, recently in making the decision after talking to a lot of people, praying about it for a long time, but we, for 10 weeks, we shut down, you know, basically almost every ministry of the church other than home fellowships because I want everyone to participate in home fellowships. Well, I learn a lot based on the people who squawk about their ministry being shut down. And I'll tell you something, when I hear people going, well, when are, that ministry needs to come back, and how come I don't like that we don't have that ministry for 10 weeks? Or You know what? It makes me feel like I don't think we should have that ministry at all. When people have the feeling that they and their agenda is what matters, something's out of order within the church, and, and somebody, and it falls to the pastor to go, okay, we're going to have to rearrange things so that that doesn't become the case. And, and so here he is saying that just acknowledge that the pastor is the leader. Now, we have ways, if you think I've just gone rogue, we have ways in our bylaws where you could get rid of me as a pastor. <laughs> I can tell you this, you wouldn't have to do it. If, I, if, if too many people are raising a ruckus, I'll, I'll be happy to leave um, because, I, because I, I really want to just serve you. But otherwise, it's... I don't say it in a cavalier way. Everyone who's here, I want to be here. I, I rejoice when I see God working in people's lives. But at the same time, if you are just so radical that you just think that you're going to come into a church and take it over and tell the pastor how to run the church, it's not going to happen. I mean, you can tell me all you want. There are people who do every day. But <laughs> just don't get mad at me when I don't do it your way. Because ultimately, I have to answer to the Lord. And, and, and that's what he's laying out here, is this kind of order. And the reason is, he says, be at peace among yourselves. If we don't understand that there are certain ministries and certain roles and certain positions of leadership, then everyone's going to be fighting about everything. I, I grew up as a kid in a church that was uh, more or less congregational rule. And I can remember the, the, the uh, congregational meetings where they spent literally hours arguing when they were putting in a new bathroom by the nursery, how many small toilets and how many large toilets should be put into the bathroom, and then what color it should be. And people are yelling back and forth, and it was just, and as a kid, it was the most entertaining thing I had ever seen in church. <laughs> But that's out of order. And so, you know, that's why we don't get together and go, well, how many parking spaces are we going to have in the new parking lot? Let's get everybody's input. Now, there are certain things for the sake of efficiency. You just do it. And you don't need to vote on it. And, and the truth is, most decisions that are made, it works either way you do it. Just like in your marriage, you know this. God has set up a certain structure within marriage whereby the man is referred to as the head of the household. Now, if you don't submit well to men, you can always be single and be the head of your own household. A lot of women have learned that's a much better way to do it. 
A lot of women who have submitted to a man at one time have figured out this is working better. But the whole thing is, it's not that men are smarter, more competent. If anything, I think it's probably because men tend to be less ambitious uh, when it comes to wanting to run things. Most men be happy to let their wives run things and if, if they could keep the peace in doing that. And so God says, sorry, men, you need to lead, whether you like it or not. Now, the peace in that family is going to be directly connected to whether or not the wife and the children understand this structure and submit to it and learn how to manipulate your husband in other ways. <laughs> but, but it's kind of the same way within the church. For the sake of peace, let's just agree, okay, yeah, we're all equal, but when two people are sitting on a horse, somebody has to be sitting in front. And if in a marriage it's a democracy, <laughs> you know, if you have a democracy in your, in your marriage, it's almost always going to be a tie, one-to-one. So at some point, you go, okay, you make the decision, and we'll both know it's your fault when it messes up. <laughs> and that's the way that God has designed it, and the same thing with the church. If I destroy the church, hey, the buck stops with me, but at the same time, for the sake of getting things done, eliminate the bureaucracy, eliminate the protests, no more, you know, no petitions, and no, we're going to, you know, we all feel this way, and Paul would just go, that's not the way you do church. Just hold in high esteem the pastor because of the work that he does, not, not necessarily because he deserves it. No one deserves to lead a church except Jesus, who is the head of the church. But he says, say, just for the work's sake, in love, and it'll take that, esteem them very highly. Be at peace among yourselves. Now he begins to talk about some other last day's behavior, and, and this, if anything, is maybe a little more directed to those in positions of ministry in terms of how they treat others, but it applies to all of us as well. And he says, now... We exhort you, brethren, and that word exhort, parakaleo, it means to be called alongside, to encourage, to be there with someone, not over them, and he calls them brethren. He said, warn those who are unruly, first of all. Now, that word warn is the same Greek word that was used in verse 12 for admonish. It means to put in mind, and so I don't know why in the English versions, they translate the same Greek word with two different words within three verses. But all this means is for everyone, hey, when you are admonishing them, when you are teaching them, when you are reminding them and placing things in their mind, um, you know, you do that to those who, first of all, are unruly. And so, and the word unruly, the way it came to be translated unruly the word is the word that means to organize or arrange, and then it's the negative prefix. So the word tasso, which means to sort or to arrange or to organize, and then not organized. So really a better, more accurate translation would be, you know, to, to admonish, to teach, to put, to call to mind those who are disorganized. But the reason they translated it unruly um, the, you know, unruly is not playing by the rules. And the idea of order here is probably referring back to 
the chain of command, the, the line of order within the ministry. And so probably what he is saying is people who are not structuring themselves and fitting in with the flow of all that God is doing within the church and within ministry and church leadership. So most, most uh, commentators believe that's kind of what he is referring to. So they took the irony of unruly, which would be not rules and it's not order, and so it's not a bad translation, probably gets to the point. But he says if, if you are in that position to admonish, make sure you teach them, those people who are unruly, those people who are out of order. You don't just right away throw them out, or you don't just ignore them, or you don't just, you know, sick an usher on them or whatever. It's like, teach them why this is important. Try to, try to minister to people who don't fit to help them to fit. Now, there comes a time some people just refuse to fit. Some people refuse to respond to the normal order that ought to be there in the church. And so in other places, it talks about how to mark those who cause divisions among you and at some point just have nothing to do with them. But it is important for leaders to teach those people too. Sometimes people are out of order because they've never been taught anything else. Sometimes people are out of order because they have been in a church with abusive leaders who let them down and so they don't trust anyone and they, and they just, you know, they're suspicious because they've been burned before. And so the idea is, hey, don't just lash out at these people, but realize they may have a really good reason why they're a bit slow to trust and why they're having a problem with respecting chain of command. And so try to drill down into that and, and make sure that you've made an effort to instruct them on why this is important. But, and then he says, he says, Comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. This is important for all of us. Sometimes the most faint-hearted, people who are just so discouraged, and the weak, the people who are just about to crumble, are not the squeaky wheels that get the grease. Sometimes you have to really make an effort to connect with people who are really in need of support, really in need of encouragement, really in need of reinforcement. And... Typically, what we do generally is, oh, man, if there's somebody who's constantly talking about their problems or they're in a position where we know them and everyone knows who they are, then, oh, everybody wants to help them. But we don't have as much of a sensitivity to people who are around the fringes for some reason and who don't ever complain or say anything. They're just calmly going about their life and, and, they, and they're falling apart and they and they don't need someone to lecture them. They just need someone to be there to help strengthen them. And I think this is certainly a calling to every pastor, but it's a calling to every person within the church because it's impossible for a few people to connect with everyone. It's one reason why I believe that it's so vitally important to get involved in home fellowships because if, if we can get some weak and faint-hearted people to push themselves enough. And those of you who lead home fellowships, please see people that you don't know around church, invite them, encourage them to come on out to your fellowship. That's how the groups will grow and flourish. But if we as a body are a place whereby we are able to draw out those who are hurting, 
and give them a freedom to share and let them know that we care about them. And hey, this isn't just a place that's for the successful, but this is a place for anybody who's hurting to come and find someone who cares about them and, and will, we'll, um, you know, just offer strength and encouragement to them. That's when the church is doing what it's supposed to do. I guarantee you right now, in this room, in this group of people, there are some people who are just on the edge of losing it. There are some people who are hurting so badly that you can't even imagine. And they're coming to church sometimes just because it's their one chance to be around people. And other times, they're thinking that I'm going to say something from the pulpit that's going to be the magic pill that fixes everything in their life. But the truth is, there isn't anything simple like that. And if I preach such a clever message that people go away thinking, wow, that changed my life, it's going to wear off after a couple days, because life isn't easy. But I'll tell you what people like that need is for somebody to just let them know they aren't alone, to seek them out, to come alongside them, to reach out to them. You can't win them all. You know, there are some faint-hearted people who just won't give you that opportunity to get close enough. Some of them will never come to a home fellowship or will act like they don't even want you talking to them in church. I will tell you this, while we are at this place, you have permission to talk to anyone who's here, whether they like it or not. I would rather, in any day, I would rather drive people away from the church because we are so stinking friendly than to have somebody come here and leave feeling lonely. Now, ultimately, people who feel crushed like that need to let others know that they're hurting. And that's why we have people, prayer warriors, who are up here in front after every service to do that. But it's all of our jobs to do that and to look out for the faint-hearted, to look out for those who are weak and find ways to strengthen them and, and be patient with all. That's the bottom line of all of it. Doing God's work and being with God's people requires patience. It's not easy. It's difficult. It's messy. Ministry always is. But it's always worth it. We're doing what the Lord has called us to do. And so, on one hand, people who are involved in ministry in the church should definitely show these traits. People who are pastors should definitely show these traits. But all of us need to, as much as God can do within us, develop within us the capacity to minister to people in this way. But when you find someone who has that kind of an approach, you're in a place where maybe you feel like, yeah, I think I'd follow you somewhere. I think, I think I'd want to be a part of what you're doing. And then he says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. If you're dealing with people, they're going to do you wrong. And if you do them wrong back, that never ends. Somebody has said, if you live by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we're all going to be blind and toothless. Because it's true, and we are. And so this general rule over the whole thing is stop justifying what you're doing because of what somebody has done to you. You say, did you say this? Did you do this? And you go, well, yeah, but you don't know the whole story. You didn't hear what they said to me. Paul would say, I don't care what they said to you. 
I don't care what they did to you. I don't care that they started it. You're not little kids. Grow up and quit just feeling like you have to get even all the time. Better than getting even is to be ahead. And the way to be ahead is what Jesus did. Turn the other cheek and don't respond the way somebody is responding to you. And then he, he focuses, beginning with verse 16, more on the inner life, on our character, who we are, our relationship specifically with the Lord. And this development of inner character is what allows us to do what he calls us to do outwardly in the previous verses. And so just really quickly, most of these are somewhat self-explanatory. Rejoice always. That's a, one of the hardest commands in the Bible, but Jesus, you know, told us to do that. Paul tells us to do it. The entire book of Philippians is all about rejoicing in, in the Lord always. Um, we're supposed to be happy. And we have to go to the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to work within us that work of joy. Because the joy of the Lord, as we learn in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so if, if we are in a position where we're representing God, we better be able to do it with joy. People who look like they can't laugh, people who can't take a joke, people who are constantly a wet blanket on everybody else's fun, dragging everyone else down. If you're that kind of person, okay, but just keep your mouth shut about being a Christian. We don't need that kind of advertising, you know. We have enough of it. But the command is just always rejoice. Always find that way to see what God is doing to devotionally spend time with him so that the fruit of the Spirit comes out of your life and that love and joy and peace becomes who you are. That's our responsibility before we get involved serving or representing God or ministering. It's getting, finding that source of joy. And how do you do that? One way is to pray without ceasing, as he says. And that doesn't mean you never stop praying, but it's that you're constantly praying. Do, throughout your day, just shooting up little prayers to the Lord, that you're the consistent person who when you see a prayer request, you'll just stop and pray for it. It's such a blessing to receive, as, as I do many, many times throughout the day, emails from different people and different churches and different missionaries sharing prayer requests, and just to stop for a few minutes and to pray for someone. And, you know, it's amazing our joy so often comes when we have committed our problems and the difficulties that we know to the Lord, and now we get to wait to see the answers. And not every prayer is answered the way that I want it to be answered, but every week if I hear of one thing great that God did and I knew I prayed for it, it makes my week. I love it. And so he says, if you want to rejoice, make sure that prayer is an important part of your life. And then he goes on to say, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Not complaining, not saying what needs to be fixed, not being a critic, there are plenty of those, but being somebody who is looking around for what God is doing and thanking him for it and thanking those that he uses for it. The reason why thanksgiving is so important is that thanksgiving always reflects a focus of God's priorities. Whenever I talk about something that is a way that I don't want it, in some ways, frankly, whenever 
the way we tend to pray sometimes, whenever I make a list of all the things I'm asking God to do, what am I doing but making a list of all the things that God hasn't seen fit to do yet? Now, God knows more than I do, and I'm thankful to be able to pray for anything. But when you look at the prayers in Scripture, they aren't complaints. They're usually prayers of saying, God, thank you for doing this, and I pray that you'll do it even more. It's just not always a list. If it's, if I, uh, you know, how can I pray for you? Well, my back's hurting today. God could heal my back. For some reason, he doesn't think that's the most important thing to do right now. So you can pray for my back, but at the same time, it's so important for me to line myself up with God's values. And if you look at last week and you think of all the things God didn't do, and then you think of all the things that God did do, guess which list shows you God's heart? It was, that was what God chose to do last week. And so as I thank him, I am going, God, I am lining myself up with your plan. You did really well this week, God. So I can look at the grounds here and things that we're doing, and I can either look at what isn't done yet, what's yet to be done, the things that God hasn't seen fit to finish, or I can look at what has been done and rejoice in what God has done. And so Thanksgiving lines me up with what God's already decided to do. When I make a request, I don't know if it's God's will or not, unless it's explicitly from his word. But when I thank him, I know that's something that really matters to God. Now, this is hard for us because you might be in a tough situation right now. You may be, you know, between jobs or something, or your job's really lousy, and all you can pray about is that job situation because it seems like the most pressing need in the world. But can you accept that God, so far, has felt that there are more important things he wants to do in your life than get you that job? Because that's the truth. That's what's going on. It's not that God's having this titanic battle against Satan and Satan's messing up all the good job opportunities that God opens up for you. It's that God has higher priorities. When we understand that, it radically transforms our lives. And that comes through praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, and thanking God. And we can go, I don't know what God's will is. This is the will of God in Jesus concerning you, to be a thankful, joyous, praying person. <laughs> and then he goes on and says, don't quench the Spirit. And that's kind of freaky that the Spirit could want to do something, but you can actually refuse to allow Him to do it. And yet, it's true. He doesn't violate your will. And so personally, in getting our walk right with the Lord, to know that in your purview of control is the opportunity to prevent a work of the Spirit in your life is a, is a sobering thought. And, and the flip side of this is, you know, he says, don't quench your spirit and don't despise prophecies. You know, don't just blow off whatever he's teaching or blow off teachings about prophecy. Don't blow off Bible teaching. However you want to look at it, it can be taken in any of those ways. What he's saying is, make sure that you are opening your heart up to the spirit. Make sure that on a regular basis, you're going, God, do anything that you want in my life. Holy Spirit, 
do whatever you choose in my heart and in my life. When you go to read the Bible or when you come to church, when you listen to a study on the radio, just go, God, if there's anything in there that's for me, I just pray that you will let me see it. I don't want to quench the Spirit. I don't want to despise those words that will come from you. I welcome anything that you want to give me that's going to help my life become more what you want it to be. And so these are personal decisions that we all make. Are we going to allow the Spirit to work in our lives through hearing what He wants to teach us? Are we going to resist the Spirit? Are we going to quench the Spirit? Are we going to grieve the Spirit by not letting it happen? I know people who have one glaring weakness in their lives that's holding them back from really being used in a great way by God. And some of them, God has been speaking to them about it for years, and yet there's something inside of them that just doesn't want to accept that, admit that, and allow God to do that work. Don't be that person. Don't be the person who isn't willing to change. And, you know, that's what he's saying here. And then test all things, hold fast what is good. Don't just do everything that everyone says. Whatever input you get, test it. Okay, God, is that for me? Is that something that you want to do in my life? And hang on to the things that are proven to be good. And then in verse 22, he says, abstain from every form of evil. That's the one in the King James that's abstained from all appearance of evil. That's the one that people quote to say, you shouldn't drink Martinelli's in a champagne glass because it might look like champagne. It's not really what the verse says or what it's intended. The reason they translated it appearance in the King James is that the word that's here is, is idos, which is the typical word for see or to view. And, and the idea is stay away from every view, every angle of evil. Really, um, form isn't too bad, but the idea is every type of an approach that involves evil, every way of looking at things that is evil, every kind of worldview or perspective that's not right, it's so easy for us to get way off base when we start by a false motivation or a wrong kind of thinking where we're starting. And what he's saying is, you need to get back to just listening to the Lord, listening to His Word, listening to good teaching, allowing the Spirit to work in your life, finding that source of joy, and stay away from a divisive, twisted, negative way of looking at things. Because as soon as you let somebody pull you off into their negativity, it's going to ruin your perspective on seeing what God is doing. You'll end up not being thankful. You'll end up not praying. Ultimately, you'll just be praying against people. You'll want to, you know, sign petitions and organize people. He's going, you stay away from that negative garbage. You know, stick with what the Spirit's doing. Go along with His program. And then he closes off by giving us a picture of where we're all headed as children of God. And I love this. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify, the word hegizo, which is the word make holy, you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body, everything about you, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't you love to be made completely holy? Well, you didn't have to do it. It was just done to you. Doesn't that sound good? Spirit, soul, and body, total healing, 
total purity, it's going to happen. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Take that snapshot of verse 23, that image of you perfectly holy. That's what you're going to be when you grow up. That's who you are going to be. And the idea always is, look, he is going to make you perfect. Now, how should that affect the way that you live now? Once in a while, you'll see some little kid who's obsessed with what he's going to be when he grows up. And so if he just really wants to be a football player, he's always wearing a football jersey and cleats around and a helmet every chance he gets. If, if he wants to be a cop, he's got the little cop uniform. If he, you know, when I was a kid, we all wanted to be Roy Rogers, and so you're wearing the cowboy boots and the hat and all that kind of stuff. Some little kid wants to be a lawyer. When he grows up, he starts wearing suits and cheap suits and carrying a briefcase, you know, whatever. But it's like, hey, here's who we're going to be when we grow up. Carry that picture in your wallet. And when you look in the mirror and you're disgusted by who you are, pull the picture out of who he says you're going to be. And he says, he will do it. And that person who's driving you nuts, who's a Christian, take a look at who they are going to be. Okay, you see them now, they drive you crazy. But who is going to do this, make them completely perfect? Hey, I'm not perfect today. Someday I will be. And it's the same thing with every person who's been called by God, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to remember that's how it winds up. And then he just finally says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren, referring to them as those who are already sanctified, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. As it reminds us not only of what we need to be and what we need to do, but who we are going to be and what you are going to do. Lord, I know that the way we act and react is often in violation of the way you've designed things to function. But help us to, in these last days, line our lives up with what you've told us and begin to live more and more reflecting your eternal values. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.